Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, Magnetic Resonance Elastography Predicts Prognosis for Nash Patients. In this conversation, Dr. Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic describes the database and analyses that underlie the groundbreaking paper, Liver Stiffness by Magnetic Resonance Elastography Predicts Future Cirrhosis, Decompensation, and Death in NAFLD. She begins by discussing the practical clinical motivations to produce the paper, describes results, and suggests implications for clinical trials and medical practice. Louise Campbell and Roger Green ask questions and exchange insights. This is groundbreaking work with major implications for drug development and patient treatment. You'll want to hear it. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatologist and hepatology researcher Dr. Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic, as they discuss Dr. Allen's recent groundbreaking paper on using MRL elastography to predict disease progression in cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients this week on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. talking about uh, the most recent paper on MRE published in Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. And I'll, maybe I'll step back to kind of show the background of to why we designed that study. And, and being a, a clinical researcher, the questions come from clinic and, and from my patients. And this paper was, was brought by the several questions I had received from my patients in the NASH clinic where we would stage their disease. And if they were non-serotic, the question was about prognosis. We would talk about all these risks, the risks of developing a cirrhosis and decompensation. And the usual question is when? How much longer do I have? When should I expect this? When should we look again? And so on. And most of the time, I would put this general bucket of recommendations that we know from everybody. But I, I lacked that individualized approach of risk stratification and prognosis. For patients with cirrhosis, the next question was, you know, risk of decompensation. When should I expect that? And, and how should we look? How do we know that this is about to happen? How do we assess liver disease progression or regression in that setting? Knowing that liver biopsy on a serial basis longitudinally for a long time is not practical. At Mayo Clinic, we, we, we use MRE as a main way to stage liver disease, specifically in fatty liver disease. This is an advantage that comes from the fact that MRE was invented by one of our radiologists here, Dr. Richard Eman, and we've implemented this method as the main method of disease staging since 2007. So we had the largest experience to try to use this non-invasive biomarker to answer some of these questions that would come from these patients in clinic, which have large clinical applicability in clinical management and clinical trials. We found over 800 patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease who had had this MRE and were followed until 2019. So we grouped these patients into two groups, a group of patients who at their initial MRE did not have cirrhosis based on liver stiffness, based on biopsy, based on lack of evidence of cirrhosis on all the other imaging and blood biomarkers we have. 
And then the second group was those with cirrhosis. What we looked at was the predictive ability of that initial liver stiffness measurement from MRE to predict outcomes. The outcomes in the non-cirrhotic group was the outcome of cirrhosis development. In the cirrhotic group, the outcomes were decompensating events such as bleeding from varices, hepatic encephalopathy, jaundice, then death. We found that liver stiffness measurement has a predictive ability in the non-cirrhotic group to predict cirrhosis development. Basically, with every increase in one kilopascal of stiffness, there's a triple risk of developing cirrhosis. For the cirrhotic group, the the predictive information from liver stiffness is that there's a 30% higher chance of decompensation with each increase in kilopascal. So if we were to draw the line to say, you know, we, we know that there's some information in the fact that the stiffer the liver is, the higher the chance of bad outcomes. It's not very surprising, is intuitive. And it had been showed in several studies with several other non-invasive biomarkers and blood biomarkers. The point was to take this further and maybe tease out as much information as we can from each kilopascal number. I think from the majority of the previous studies had used this binary outcome with a cutoff. If you are above this cutoff, you have a higher chance or X higher chance to develop disease. If you're below, then it's it's okay. Here, what we tried to do is to not do this binary approach, but to use this continuous use of the liver stiffness measurement to individualize the prediction of each patient. So I'll start with the clinical management implications of how we can use this information in clinical practice to answer those questions to my patients now. And maybe for the subsequent parts of this podcast, we can talk about the clinical trial implications or, or you know, once the, the drugs would be in the market, how, how this may be used. So the first, the clinical implications part, we proved that we can use liver stiffness measurement by MRE not only to tell the patient with highest accuracy where they are on this continuum scale of fibrosis, but also how do we use that information to know for the non-serotics when to look again. The paper shows a nice table where you can plug each patient's kilopascal to say, what's your predicted probability of having cirrhosis, let's say, in five years? If you are a non-serotic and your stiffness is around two kilopascals, five years after this initial MRE, there's about a 1% chance of cirrhosis development. So there's no reason for me to do MREs yearly. It is not cost-effective. But if you have a 2.5 kilopascal, I can call you back in five years and look again. If you are a non-serotic with 4 kPa, the risk of, of development of cirrhosis in, you know, in two years is about 3%. So maybe I would like to see you sooner to, to follow the disease progression. So it's one of the important uh, pieces of information we didn't have when to look again. For those with cirrhosis, everybody would be stage four, but everybody's risk is different. So a stage four with four kPa LSM, let's take that for an example, has a 10% risk of decompensation or death in two years, whereas if they have eight kPa, the risk is triple, is about almost 30%. Why is this important? It is important into having the patients understand how close this risk is and how high this risk is, putting a number to this, and also having an idea of how closely to follow them and how to how aggressively to implement measures. Yeah. I am a huge believer in numbers, and I think I'm on Louise's camp who thinks that there's behavior influence in these numbers. And I have seen a lot of patients who like to see this initial number, but also in follow-up. I'll close with this anecdotal example of a patient that I had uh, actually in my clinic recently who I had followed over the last three or four years, initially with a stiffness of around three something, three to four, when I would say, you're probably advanced fibrosis, we'll follow you closely. Then COVID happened, the weight gain happened, as we see in a lot of our patients, came back and his stiffness on MRE went up to six point something. And I said, you know, 
know, based on this, I'm concerned that you actually have cirrhosis now. If you were on the gray zone before, you are no longer there. All this while, platelet count in the borderline range, AST and ALT normal. So none of the blood biomarkers were mirroring any worsening other than this liver stiffness measurement. When the patient saw that graph, we were able to graph it and show it. It was a big eye-opening experience to him. So I said, you know, we have to do something now. That now is aggressive lifestyle changes and then referral to bariatric surgery evaluation because we want to take this window of opportunity before portal hypertension to do something. Patient was young. The patient wants to avoid biopsy, wants to avoid surgery, wants to do anything non-invasively. So six months later, messaged me saying, I lost 60 pounds of weight. Can you do another MRE? I want to see what happens to my liver. And I said, sure, we can do that. Kilopascal was down to four point something. It was very rewarding to see the light in that patient's face. If we were to do a biopsy, I'm sure it was still stage four fibrosis. The patient did not become non-serotic, but there's so much information in what the stiffness can tell us. And that information influences the patient's behavior to a degree that cannot be put in numbers. And I think this is probably the largest impact of having a non-invasive biomarker that you trust and that you can use longitudinally over time. Go ahead, Louise. This, this is right in your wheelhouse. I think Elena's work is fantastic. Those figures in the mortality and decompensation are frightening. And they're even more frightening for the reason that the Mayo is a is a centre of excellence. And if those are the mortality and the changes in patients that get expert care, it's one of the reasons that we try and target early diagnosis to get people and patients to hepatologists and specialists. Because you just see here in the UK, 55% of all cirrhotics are diagnosed in the emergency department at an episode of decompensation. Those patients don't have the opportunities to undergo the expert care that Alina and her team are doing. The one thing I was just going to ask, because I've heard a lot about the differences in the ranges of the kilopascals. Could you just explain those for me? As a, am very familiar with kilopascals from Fibroscan, and it's a different range level. If we were to draw a equivalence, would be times three for, for Fibroscan. So you would divide by three to find the ranges of, of MRE. A very rough estimate. There is no really one-to-one equivalent. But yes, roughly what we know is that a normal liver stiffness is around 2, 2.5. Between 2.5 and 3 is inflammation or mild fibrosis, a little bit hard to distinguish what it is. From 3 and on, there's various ranges of, of fibrosis where 5 and higher is for sure cirrhosis. So between 3 and 5, we have these grade, grades of 1 to 2, 2 to 3, 3 to 4, and so on. It is not set in stone. There are cirrhotics with a kilopascal of 4, as this paper shows, because you can see the nodule surface of the liver. Maybe they have a borderline splenomegaly, a little bit of lower platelet count. So it's not set in stone. There is a little bit bit of a gray zone. That's why the equivalent ranges for us in fibrosis estimation by histology is a range of this to this, but largely divide fibroscan by three. A couple thoughts. As somebody who's A, old and B, statistician by training and not a big fan of unitary statistics, but a big fan of good statistics. So in some ways, this reminds me of cholesterol back in the 80s when the U.S. came out with this first study that went from trying to set a level at which cholesterol was too high, but to a simple statement, um, in that case, established by tens of thousands of patients, that if your total cholesterol was over 200, every 1% increase in cholesterol led to a 2% increase in cardiovascular disease, which did two things. As you say, it got rid of the artificial thresholds, and it led to a change in the reference labs, where previously they would do what they did with everything else and say, if you two standard deviations over the population, that's too high. Here, they now had a number to say way lower than we thought risk starts going up. So this feels to me very much like the same thing, certainly for the non-serotics, almost exactly the same thing. Yes, that's the the 
beauty of having this stepping outside of this rate limiting factor of a boxed histologic number. There's something to know about this scale. This is a dynamic disease. There's a fluctuation in how the stiffness and the and the fat fraction, for that matter, in the liver changes over time. How will this apply to clinical trials is something to further disentangle. But as we move on to these non-invasive biomarker arena, everybody's looking at kind of one piece and trying to disentangle which one gives us more information. We have to keep in mind this continuous of information that we get. And what do we learn from this incremental change? What does this translate to into outcomes? I think what we can gather by taking advantage of this large population of over 800 patients, probably the largest collection of MREs in NAFL that exists, is one further step towards outcome connection that is so sorely needed at FDA and how we move on to clinical trials. What does this number translate to in you know median of five years from now? In my view, every non-invasive test should probably be studied that way rather than a cutoff. And how do we change a patient's outcome if we continue to see this incremental or how do we interpret these fluctuations, right? Cholesterol goes up and down. LSM can go up and down. We're actually looking at this natural history. What is a natural change to the liver stiffness or in the PDFF, for example, if we just follow people without a drug, without a lifestyle? Maybe there's these deltas over time that are just the natural progress or process of, of this disease. We need to interpret those in the context of the natural history so that we can design trials where we can plan for a, you know, a delta incremental thing above what the disease itself does. No, excellent. I had two other questions. 800 patients is a ton of patients, but probably not a tremendous amount of lean NASH patients. How many lean NASH patients did you have in the 800? If lean NASH is different than everything else and there are signs that it is, then you might not have enough patients to catch that difference. I did not look specifically at the lean piece of this, I am a a little bit circumspect at defining lean NASH on the BMI. The more I work, and I've looked into this disease and I've I've looked at lean NASH as another kind of interest of mine in in population-based studies. Lean NASH means by kind of standard definition is a patient who has a BMI of 25 or or lower if they are Caucasian. There were not a lot of people looking at the data here. The range of BMI was 28.9 for the interquartile is the lowest. So there were not a lot, but it doesn't mean that they were completely lean. Unless we have measures of visceral adipose tissue, we can't really call them that. So this was not a study designed to look at that. It is a huge gap in knowledge to study the natural history of these people. But defining them by truly what they are, a lean NASH person not defined by BMI, but maybe by body composition or a measure of visceral adiposity. So it's funny, I've always thought of lean NASH as a phenomenon that simply strikes people that have fewer cardiovascular or metabolic comorbidities where the disease tends to progress faster. Obviously, if if there is a group like that and they progress faster, then you'd want to sort that out. In the con- I, I think this is fantastic work. I think I think basically you, you've shined a big bright Klieg light on a very important dark corner, right? And of course, it then leads to the next five questions, which is why researchers keep having work to do. But, so that was just one that struck me. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the ongoing dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. We will release our next episode on Wednesday, April 14th, when we preview the fourth Global Nash Congress. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast or in the conversation groups. Bye-bye now.